0: Welcome to 2038, the podcast where we interrogate predictions about what the world will be like in 20 years. In the future, no one will fuck.
1: In the future, the ebbing of romantic and sexual connections will continue. What I've recently described as a sex recession will prove in the two decades to come to be an ongoing sexual stagnation, despite the advent, at long last, of male birth control. People will have sex less frequently than they did in the pre-internet era, which will be remembered as a more carnal time. They will have fewer lifetime sexual partners and they will be more likely to be abstinent. Only a minority of teenagers will have sex of any sort. Masturbation and other varieties of solo sex will continue to be more prevalent than they were before the internet. Aficionados will enjoy VR sex and sex robots. Like many other aspects of our world in the decades that come, the gap between the haves and have-nots will continue to grow. Those who have many advantages already will be disproportionately likely to find romantic and sexual partners, if they desire them, and to have fulfilling sex lives. There will be good parts of this, non-consensual sex will be far less common than it is today. There will be little to no social stigma attached to being unattached. Those who approach singledom with psychological and financial advantages will flourish. It will be the best time in human history to be single. But there will be less unambiguously positive developments as well. Both for better and for worse, the birth rate will continue to fall, and those who are less suited to solo life will suffer from profound loneliness. I'm Kate Julian, and I'm the author of The Sex Recession, the cover story of the December issue of The Atlantic.
0: I'm David Wallace-Wells. I used to host a podcast about sex and have a long Gmail draft open with all of my notes about sex robots in it. Um,
2: I'm Max Reed, and I'm very excited to see how sex is going to develop over the next 20 years. So, Kate, you you say in your introduction that what you described a sort of trend as a sexual recession, and I was hoping you could uh, give us a somewhat more expansive definition of, of what a sexual recession is and why you think we're in one right now.
1: So if you compare Americans' sex lives to the sex lives of people at the same age in the early 90s, People are, who are now in their 20s are on track to have fewer lifetime sexual partners. They're having sex less frequently. They're about two and a half times as likely to be abstinent. And they have launched their sex lives later. Taken together, it would seem that something is getting in the way of people's ability or desire to connect to each other physically. And that's what I'm referring to when I call this a sex recession.
0: What do you think that is? What do you think is getting in the way?
1: So in the piece that I've written for The Atlantic about this, I approach this somewhat as a sort of detective story. There's one overarching big cause, but then there are several things that are also factoring in and kind of leading or contributing, I think, to that big cause. The big cause is that more people than not who are under 35 are living without any sort of partner, which is a change from decades past. The most common living arrangement for adults who are under 35 is to be living with a parent, which I think is safe to say for many of us, probably not a great recipe for a a super active and fulfilled sex life.
0: I don't know. I feel like I I think of like all the 25 year olds living in Brazil with their parents and the Italians living with their parents and like and you, you imagine that it's they make fine. It
1: happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes I actually just this morning got an email from somebody Italian taking issue with in the piece I, I point out that even more Italians are living with their parents than Americans and I, I, this email although I haven't read it seems to go into some detail about why this might not actually be bad for ones sex life but I haven't I haven't contemplated that <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting to think that the I mean the American phenomenon you're talking about has something to do with the recession so it's it's recent it's not deep cultural and so there may be some other kind of you know psychological impacts that come along with it that wouldn't be there in somewhere like Italy, right?
1: Perhaps, perhaps. Although I think, <laughs> I think. well, so when we look at the fertility rate, right, like it started to drop with the beginning of the Great Recession and everybody thought, oh, well, it will rebound after the recession, and it hasn't. Um, and obviously the fertility rate and how much sex people have are sort of related but really separate questions. And yet something seems to be going on that's continuing to depress the fertility rate, and I suspect that it has something to do with the... Th- same thing that's keeping people from forming partnerships and from sort of making other kinds of in-person connections.
0: And you, I assume you mean that that's sort of like social media broadly defined and...
1: Uh, yeah, there's a handful of things going on here I would say. The first has to do with media broadly and I wouldn't just say social media. The other thing people jump to is porn and I wouldn't say just porn. I would put sort of any kind of digital occupation that makes it less desirable to go out and connect with somebody in the real world, kind of in the same Category. So it could be porn, it could be social media for that matter, it could be, you know, Netflix or streaming TV. Um, and all of those things, I think, coincide with a sort of measured increase in the percentage of people who say that they've masturbated in the last week. That's doubled since the early 90s. Um, and actually, among women, it's tripled. Um, so, so that's sort of one big set of causes. A second set of causes, when we're looking at teens specifically, has to do with the way adolescence has changed and the way parenting mores have changed. So for a variety of reasons, teenagers are having sex later. And this has been widely and understandably greeted as an awesome development. And in a lot of ways, it is, right? The teen pregnancy rate is like a third of what it was in the early 90s. People say they're more likely to have wanted their first sexual experience. That's awesome. But it seems like more people are coming into their 20s with less um, sort of romantic experience generally um, than, than past cohorts. And for some people, that actually proves to be sort of a really difficult thing to kind of reverse. It's like, ah, I've never held hands with somebody. I've never kissed somebody. How do I do that when I'm 23, 24, 25 Um, A third big category has to do with dating apps, which have become sort of like the normal way to meet people in a lot of circles and in a lot of places, and yet for some people are clearly functioning really poorly and maybe sort of paradoxically actually making it harder to match up with people. A fourth category, which sort of goes back to the porn question a little bit, has to do with the quality of sex people are having. And some of the stuff that I uncovered and suggested that learning about sex from porn may be leading some people to try things like early in their sex lives that are scaring their partners off of sex, possibly, if not permanently, then for a while. And then the last big category, um, depressingly, has to do with depression and anxiety, both of which seem to be rising, both of which hamper libidos the treatments for both of which also hamper libidos so that's a long list of causes but they seem to be intersecting intersecting and in sort of um, overlapping in interesting ways here
0: so if you draw out like those a couple of those trend lines say 20 years and you have um, most people having less and less sex, and you also have most people masturbating more and more. Is there like a point at which culturally, like masturbate, even if people now have more, like masturbate more than they have sex generally, um, is there a point at which culturally, like that becomes the essential sexual act more than person on person, you know, screwing?
1: Yeah. So, so I would, I would argue that we probably shouldn't expect current trend lines to continue at the current rate, right? In other words, I don't think, like, you know, masturbation is going to t- continue to double. This isn't going to be an expo- exp- exponential thing.
0: Well, all those grandmothers who haven't yet checked out Pornhub. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think that most of the change or much of the change has probably already happened, you know, that, that over the past 20 years we've seen something that was surprisingly stigmatized over the course of the 20th century to an extent that I didn't really realize until I started working on this, um, become much less stigmatized. And that's a really interesting change. What's complicating that when we look forward is that there's been a real reaction to sort of the growth of masturbation and the, the rise of porn that could have some unintended consequences that is, there are a bunch of different sort of anti-masturbation and anti-porn movements that have taken, sort of have, have, have risen in the past 10 years or so. There's NoFap, which is um, founded by a retired Google contractor based on the, his popular Reddit board, which sort of offers a program for people to quit masturbating. There's Fight the New Drug, which is an anti-porn movement out of Salt Lake City, which is presenting in schools around the country it's become actually just this huge thing on the far right and among the alt-right there are there's sort of strains of this as well And what's really interesting is that some of the sort of emerging porn research on the effects of porn, you know, as much as it's been hard to come up with any real clear morals because the research just isn't really that robust, seems to suggest that some of the adverse impacts of porn are correlated more than anything else with whether or not you think it's bad for you. That is, if you're religious or you've been consuming messages that say porn and masturbation are bad, you're more likely to have sexually dysfunctional and compulsive behaviors. So we could see something, right, where after sort of decades of masturbation being really taboo in American culture in the 20th century, it became less taboo. And then, bizarrely, sort of in the in the in the twenty teens, it started to become more taboo again. That seems entirely possible to me, given the sort of the the prevalence of these anti- masturbation efforts.
2: I should note, by the way, that we're recording this just after the end of No nut November. So <laughs> um, really appropriate time for all of us to be to be having this chat. Um, I wanted to go back to, uh, Dave started asking a question about the recession. Um, and I am sort of am interested, you know, talking on the one hand about, for example, young people not cohabiting with romantic partners, living with their parents. And on the other end of this sort of range of reasons for the sexual recession is a rise in depression and anxiety, which, uh, I think is also correlated to some extent with, um, sort of career prospects with general economic prospects. So I'm wondering, like, you know, to the extent that it's even possible, if we could remove um, our ongoing and somewhat unequal recovery from, you know, not just the 2008 recession but also the 2001 recession, if I could wave a magic wand and put the economy back on track and increase employment and make housing less expensive and stuff, how much do you think that would, you know, sort of? put us in a position where the trend lines reverse?
1: I think it would probably help a great deal. I mean, one of, you know, there does seem to be a pretty tight correlation between the cost of living and the birth rate dropping. I mean, yeah, Zillow, of all places, had a funny study that came out earlier this year that looked at this and, you know, lo and behold, the birth rate dropped most in the places where housing costs had, had increased the most over the last 20 years. I think it would make a tremendous difference.
2: I mean, I, I, I ask partly because, you know, we have this sort of, um, th- like, it. I'm interested in separating out these sort of structural causes in the sense, like, these economic structural causes from the kind of, I guess what I would describe as cultural and technological ideas that are sort of seeping through. Um, we're talking about social media. We're talking about porn. Um, one thing that comes up in your article a bit is sort of negative self-image and, and body image issues that seem to me to be derived partly from, I, I guess, advertising culture and Hollywood culture. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little
0: which, bit. It's just to jump in, which is also interesting because I think at the kind of media meta narrative level, we have the idea that, like, body image is healthier now in the public eye than it was 15 years ago, 25 years ago, that there is more public appreciation for um, different kinds of bodies. And it seems like that's not actually how it's playing out
1: Um. Yeah, I I certainly don't buy that that's the case. Um, I think there's a growing body of research showing that heavy social media use, uh, particularly in adolescence, is correlated with poor self-image. And this is probably, it would seem, based on interviews I did with both experts and people, based on their own lived experiences, particularly the case for... Some of the more sort of photo-centric apps, so for example, Instagram and the way teenagers use Instagram specifically can make people feel really, really crummy about themselves. Um, I think porn is a complicated part of this. There's some research I cite um, out of Europe showing that men who consume more porn have like poor – the technical term is genital self-image. I'm sorry to to, to say that. Um, but this was something that one of the sex researchers who I really liked, De- Debbie Herbanek, uh, at Indiana University, really focused on. Like there's about a quarter of people who feel really badly about their Genitals, and that is not a sort of predictor of a happy or healthy sexual life. So I think that's part of this as well. Um, I think there's a there's a something that another sex researcher said to me early in my reporting that I initially discounted and then it kept coming up, having to do with gym habits of younger Americans. He sort of said. I think there's something interesting that hasn't been appreciated going on with this generation in terms of its comf- it's being comfortable being nude. And I sort of thought at first, like, that's completely bogus. Like, people sexed. Like, it's, you know, most people sexed now. That is That is a fact. How could we be doing that if we felt so badly about the way we look naked? And yet... You know, it it seems he's on to something. Gyms around the country are sort of increasingly redesigning their changing areas to accommodate the fact that younger gym users, as opposed to older ones, don't want to get naked in front of other people.
0: Although I guess that's a little bit of a, in most cases, a non-sexual situation, It's a
1: non-sexual situation, and yet it's hard for me to think that the two things don't go together to some extent, right? Like, yes, if you're a heterosexual person, like if you're a heterosexual 23-year-old man, does your, you know, comfort being naked around, you know, other straight men, like, really have anything to do with anything? You know, in some ways, no, but I think in some ways, yes, right? I mean, if you, there, another thing that I sort of initially dismissed as kind of a bogus trend sort of report was I think it was reported in the Times that there was sort of a move toward more and more private and sort of higher end homes, more and more private sort of restroom space, like bathroom space and master bathroom <laughs> suites, so that it, w- it wasn't just the sort of like walled off toilet it was the two anymore. And the- yeah, it was like <laughs> the two, two toilets and the two showers and everything. And I'm like, that's a little weird to me. Well, you got to
0: fill those like twenty five thousand square feet that are like. Well, area, yeah, you know? maybe, no. maybe that's
1: maybe that's. I mean, it could totally that could be just totally bogus. <laughs> sort of, you know, re- real estate people coming up with things that we don't need. But, but I do think you know I kept hearing this from people after the piece came out too that that resonated with them the feeling of sort of discomfort um, being nude and of course this could be just a minority of people who are having that response, and yet for them it could be really, you know, you know, really really crippling in a way.
0: You said earlier that you feel um, one strong possibility is that most of the changes on these metrics that are going to happen may have already happened, that we've sort of reached a new normal. And um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about that, you know, pulling back a bit, you know, is this – are we seeing – the way that people want to be having sex? Is the way that people are having sex generally right now a reflection of general desire or is it still being distorted and deformed by a lot of these forces? And if it is, how do you see those forces changing and sexual patterns changing over the next couple of decades?
1: So I think it's a mix. And I also think that we don't really have the research to answer this question authoritatively. But based on what we do know and the the interviews that I did, I would say there are some people who feel really happy about the fact that they're not worrying about romance and sex, and they feel that it's, you know, freeing them to focus energy on other things, and that's terrific. I talked to far more people who 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 didn't have active sex lives who felt um, quite miserable about it. And so then a question becomes sort of, are we headed towards something like the Japan scenario, where at some point the desire for um partnership that's elusive becomes replaced by some condition where that's less normal and people are actually not saying that they want partnership. And that's been sort of a shift that's happened in Japan. I talk about this a little bit in the article as, you know, economic conditions have made it harder to date and harder to marry within the sort of social structure and norms there. At first, I think there was a sense people weren't feeling sort of fulfilling um sort of social expectations and now the social expectations have actually changed a bit and younger japanese people are expressing less interest in getting married not just you know belief that they will get married but actually less interest
2: if you were um President or dictator say, and you felt like you wanted to reverse this trend or reverse these trends, uh, or even if you just wanted to take some of the things, that, the problems that you'd seen in reporting out this article, what would you implement? Like, how would you how would you change education? How would you change um, living and romantic and whatever arrangements? I mean, I guess from a policy perspective, you can't force people to cohabitate or anything.
1: Yeah, I think there are maybe three parts of this. I mean, one has to do with how we should all live. You know, in an era when um, fewer people are living in the context of a partnership one has to do with sex education i think this is really vital and one has to do with um, sort of parenting and attitudes toward adolescent adolescence. so taking the sort of first part of it i think if we want to adapt to the reality that more people are spending more of their life living outside the context of a couple we need to think about you know uh, modes of housing that befit that Early in my reporting for the piece, I spent quite a bit of time hanging out at We Live and other co-living spaces. And I did this in part because um, my editor suggested that it might be sort of an interesting scene. And I, I didn't end up including it in the piece, but I found it sort of actually surprisingly fascinating. I went there sort of thinking maybe these would sort of give me a place where I could see people making connections outside the dating app world. Maybe these places would sort of live up to their reputation as being dorms for adults. And yet what I found when I went to them was that people were sort of like, ew, no, I don't want to, like, repeat my college experience (laughs) and be having, like, sexual or romantic connections with somebody that I'm going to see while I'm doing laundry. Like, there there are better ways to live. And so it didn't really factor into the piece. But I will say that I found it surprisingly appealing as a mode of living, you know? It seemed like they they were—the one that I visited in Arlington was actually surprisingly sort of diverse. It was sort of a mix of more ages than I would have expected, including some people in their 60s people from all over the world because it's dc um and just people sort of in different walks of life some temporary and some treating it as a more permanent thing and i thought it was kind of cool um i I went into it with sort of very negative attitude so i think that's sort of one part of this i think a second part of this has to do as i said with sex education um which has always been sort of um a patchwork in the united states we don't have any sort of national mandates on the topic. And, you know, some states require it, some don't, some say that it has to be medically accurate, some don't, some, some, you know, even within a state, like, you know, there can be a sort of wide variety of things going on, some of which are pretty harmful and medically not accurate and really shaming and otherwise, otherwise sort of really detrimental. And so I think that in the age of sort of really easy access to porn for kids like we've got to deal with this problem somehow. So if I were a dictator I would say that you know we needed to have you know comprehensive sex education meaning sex education that's not abstinence based and doesn't have sort of a religious perspective and which it, it would start as early as like age four which is sort of the age at which it starts in the Netherlands already um, and it would include topics that are really verboten here like, Pleasure and happiness, it would communicate to the people the idea that this should be fun and you should enjoy it, which a surprising number of people are sort of, especially younger women, are not totally coming away with. Um, and then I guess the third part, moving to sort of adolescence and parenting, is in a, in a way actually the trickiest part. I think that part of what's happened with adolescence is in the past couple, sort of 20 years is that as parents have been really more involved and more anxious and more protective of their children, they've protected them from some sort of uh, crucial space for making mistakes. I think it's a lot easier as an adolescent to experiment with sexual and romantic rejection and heartbreak and all of that than it is when you're in your 20s. And yet, I don't really know how we fix that. One professor I spoke to uh, and feature in the piece, Alexandra Solomon, who's a professor of psychology at Northwestern, talked about to me about how we need to sort of foster. Parents need to encourage flirtation and crushes and romance. And at first, I thought, oh gosh, that sounds really good. Like we need to recognize this for the crucial developmental stage that it is. And yet, like I don't know what would be more of a sort of disincentive than my parents pressuring me about like wanting to have a crush on somebody. That would be completely counterproductive. Um, but I do think some sort of reevaluation of, of sort of how we think about teenagers and sexuality would be in order.
0: One thing that's interesting to think about to me is just how this is all unfolding against a backdrop of a, you know, continuing rampant sexualization of the culture that, so we've talked about porn, we've talked about dating apps, but just in general, mm-hmm. I think there is this sort of expanding sense that, um, you know, one, way that you express or find your identity is through your sex life um and that you know having a healthy and happy and fulfilling life is um profoundly you know that sex has to be some profoundly central part of that Mm -hmm. um those messages to me aren't yet at least abating we're still Mm -hmm. living in a culture that is teaching us more and more to value sex Mm -hmm. but it's happening at a time when people are having less and less of it um which is kind of a recipe for some of the you know feelings I, of dysfunction that you. I
1: been think that's about. absolutely right, and my hope is that in the in the twenty years that sort of follow the, this moment, that our sort of expectations and notions of what's normal will kind of realign a bit, because I think part of what people feel really crummy about right now is the idea that they're not normal, um, and so as our expectations about coupledom and um, sort of sex maybe adjust, people don't feel so much like they're out of sync. Um, it, it, it is ironic, though, that as you say, that in this sort of hyper-sexualized moment where sexual fulfillment is sort of all that and more, in theory, it is sort of really also at the same time a profoundly unsexy moment. I found myself thinking about this a little bit, um, you know, I, I, I think this has come up in some, at least one of your other podcasts, but you sort of Thanks look for at... Listening. If, <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you if you look to sort of dystopian movies, right, like very few visions of the future involve sex being unattractive, right? You see sort of visions of the future where maybe sex and reproduction are decoupled, but you don't, at least as far as I can think of, and I'd be super curious if anybody has examples to the contrary, um, with the exception maybe of like Children of Men, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, you don't have very many examples where sort of passion itself is sort of petering out.
0: Well, that that may be like the Hollywood limit. They're willing to sketch a completely bleak portrait of absolutely everything except, like, <laughs> but the still has to be sex on their screen. I think yeah. that's
1: right. I think that's right. Yeah, and, and, and you know, there's some funny stuff, right? You have, you have versions where there's, like, homosexuality, there's, like, lesbians, there's matriarchal societies, there's transsexuality. There's, there's all kinds of things, but there's got to be some sex there.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Kate.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: How credible did you think this prediction was?
0: Uh, Pretty credible. It seems to me like the trends that she's describing, both on the kind of cultural sexual side and on the economic political side are here to stay. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that we'll get all the way to Japan, as she says, but it wouldn't shock me to see the um, trends continuing so much that, you know, young people are having less sex than they're having even now, 20 years from now, and jerking off more masturbating more um and uh probably still watching a ton of porn
2: yeah i mean it seems like you know there's a there's a lot of sort of uh trend story anecdoty bits to it but the core data seems basically right um the the what you look in the in the general social survey and the other places it seems like yeah this is it's kind of less even a prediction of the future than a description of a present that has no real reason to change at this point
0: point. and how do you feel about the plausibility of it? I mean, it seems like a pretty likely
2: um, outcome. I don't like like we were just saying. I don't see any reason why any of this stuff is going to change. I mean, I do think you know I asked about this because it's it's a it's a little bit of a because um, I think it's an important question. If if the economy reverses, it's kind of present course i mean that's a, sort of an ambiguous way to put it but like the economy's in sort of an ambiguous place if millennials let's put it this way if millennials get a better and bigger piece of the economy than they currently are i think we could see some level of change in the direction that these kinds of trends are going these statistics are going
0: do you know do we have data about like a, a equivalent data from other parts of the world i mean if you think about it for instance a country that we talk about in every episode china um where they have not they, they've they've had smaller and larger boom years they haven't really had like a recession (laughs) over the last decade um and they're going through a similar social media revolution i mean they have a different past with the sexual revolution they have a different past with um, sexual culture in generally in general, but I'd be curious to know where the trend lines are there or in the about, USA or in, yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't know China. I know that Europe seems to be experiencing the same kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a crisis in the West. Basically. I meant to ask about this because we were talking about the Netherlands, which has much more sort of holistic and, um, positive sex education. But my understanding is also, is that it's also facing a very similar kind of, um, Recession or stagnation or whatever. I mean, the other thing about China is that it, I believe porn is banned there um, entirely. So it would be an interesting test test case.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I remember I, I remember when I was when I was like nineteen and I went i spent like a month in China and we spent a few days in Hong Kong and like walked into Hong Kong and all of a sudden there was porn was not banned in Hong Kong, <laughs> which meant that like every store was selling like you it's know like the duty free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so what about the terrifying? aspect of it are you as scared of this future as maybe kate is not
2: really i mean it seems like for the most like i think that to the extent that we can separate out various causes for these trends i think it's terrifying if like a shitty economy for millennials is making them have less sex and enjoying themselves less if they're more depressed and more anxious that seems like a bad thing but that's also a bad thing in and of itself not because they're having less sex if people are having less sex because they're they would prefer to have less sex because they are having less bad sex because they're having less sex they wouldn't have had in the first place. That seems like a pretty unambiguously good outcome. Um, You know, I'm a little less worried than she is about the idea that we're improperly socializing our teenagers and that's why they're having bad romantic relationships it just strikes me as a kind of if you ask 20 year olds over the last 100 years whether or not they felt equipped to have social relationships I think a lot of them would say no they did not feel that way at all I don't think that that's a unique um, aspect to this generation I certainly don't think it has any anything to do with social media which is a place where I would think tends to over socialize
0: people rather than under socialize them I don't know how do you feel uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like, a, you know, a married monogamist at heart. The idea that, like, the world as a whole is, like, a little less sexually um, crazy it does not terrify me. It seems like sort of uh, like a mature, sober uh, way of <laughs> moving forward. I'm curious um, about this bit that she mentioned in the intro, which we didn't get into in the conversation, about the sort of di- distribution of sex. This is a sort of, like... Um, Uh, you know, this famously um, undergirds like all of Michelle Welbeck's novels. And um, it's been written about a bunch over the last few years in the age of the dating app that basically you have a few sexual winners, sexual whales who are like having very, very um, prolific sex lives. And then a number of uh, many, many more people who not only are missing out, but are judging themselves by the public standard of those success stories in much the same way that you know rampant capitalism delivers few winners and many unhappy losers um are you worried about that no i mean you and i have talked about this before there's a kind of
2: um there's there's the data is inconclusive and i think there's a lot to to sort of look at whether or not there we are reaching this kind of huge sexual inequality um and you know i i, I have just been reading um, you, you know, there's, there's, there's strong evidence that in fact, we're not, that we're looking at, you know, there are people who have more sex and people who have less sex, but it's not, um, as you said, a case of sexual whales and, 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 you know, so-called incels. And in fact, the population of incels in the U S is sort of vanishingly small. All that being said, I do think there is a tendency on sort of the way we encounter things on social media and the way we encounter the world around us. And I don't have this as a fully formed theory, um, so check back in with me in six months, but that there's a tendency to to think about the world in terms like that, that it's not just in sex, it's how we think about you know, money. It's how we think about success. It's how we think about all kinds of things. That there's something about um, encountering the world over Instagram and Twitter that puts us in a position where we feel like, w- like every individual feels like he or she is always losing out big, and there are other people out there who are winning really big. So to me, if there's going to be, which a-
0: might be a reason why incels, for instance, have been so loud and aggressive over the last few years, even if their numbers aren't growing, they feel more marginalized than the same people felt 20 years before. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And so I, you know, I think, you know, I think that that if there's a way to connect... Connect social media with the sort of art changing attitudes towards sex. I think that's one place to be thinking about it. Thank you to Kate Julian for sharing her prediction about the future of sex today. If you haven't read it yet, do read her article. There's a link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss, and our editor is David Haskell. Recording services by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Subscribe to 2038 and check us out at newyorkmag.com forward slash 2038. I'm Max Reed. That's David Wallace-Wells. This is the last episode of the first season of 2038. See you in the future.